We're going to be in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. So if you need a Bible, uh, please raise your hand. We'll get one to you. We want you to have the uh, Word of God in your lap as we study the Word of God, as we read through the Word of God. Have it with you. Follow along. So Ephesians chapter 2. As it says up here, we're going to talk about reconciliation through grace this morning, through God's grace in Ephesians chapter 2. If you will, stand with me. We'll read uh, a few verses and then we'll, uh, we'll pray together as we get going in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 and verse 1, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Pray with me. Father, again, we thank you so much this morning. Father, we thank you for your word that we have to study, Lord, that we have in front of us today, Lord. We thank you for reconciliation through grace, Lord, that you pour out upon us. Father, I pray for everyone here today, Lord, that we are prepared, Lord. Our hearts are open. Our hearts are ready to receive what it is that you have for each and every one of us, Lord, through the power of your word. Speak to us now, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. So reconciliation through grace. We're going to look at a couple different areas of reconciliation as we look through our text today in Ephesians 2. The first part we're going to look at is individual reconciliation. One-on-one reconciliation between you and the Lord. Between me and the Lord. And then we'll look at some other areas of reconciliation. And as we go through this, uh, again, just be open to what the Lord has for you today from His Word. Not my words, but from His Word for each and every one of us today. Christians are alive. Are we not? It doesn't sound like it. I don't know. Yeah, we're alive. Right? Yeah, we're again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm here this morning. My mom made me come. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Christians are alive. We're alive from the dead. Look again in verse 1. It says, And you, notice it says, He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. Made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. If you're a believer this morning, you once were dead, and then he brought you to life. Paul is going to consider what the implications of Jesus' resurrection power are for our life. It's very important for us as we look at this. You Because know, it says, who were dead in trespasses and sin? We must never forget as believers where we came from, Right? We must never forget the pit that he pulled us 
proud of. Because we were all, at one point, hopefully none of you here today are still there, but in trespasses and sin, in that pit. You know, there's certain kinds of uh, life that, you know, we like to talk about. There's, you know, vegetable life, animal life. There's uh, mental, your spiritual life. You know, and a lot of what we're going to talk about today is your spiritual life. Where is your spiritual life at in reconciliation to God? You know, being uh, alive, in one, you know, we might be alive. Obviously, you know, today we have heartbeats, we're alive, but we can still be dead at the same time. We can be spiritually dead. You know, to be spiritually dead does not mean that we are like, you know, physically dead, right? But to be spiritually dead, maybe there's a wall of separation still between you and the Lord. Sadly, today, a lot of people are more concerned about being socially dead than being spiritually dead. Oh, man, I've got to keep up this account and Instagram and this and Facebook and Snapchat. I've got to keep all these things going and juggling all these things. Yet, their spiritual concern, I'll get to that on Sunday morning for about an hour and then we're good. You know, I'm good for the whole week. Not me. I can't do that. I like what Wood says. He says, the most vital part of a man's personality, the spirit, is dead to the most important factor in most people's lives, God. It's dead. Are we dead to the Lord? We need to ask ourselves that this morning. You see, we err if we think that, you know, where it says there, you know, we kind of just jumped over it real quickly there in verse 1 because it says, dead to trespasses and sin. You know, that's just a uh, small you know, couple words about man's full lost condition, right? The Bible is very clear about man's lost condition without the Lord. We're blind. We're slaves to sin. We're lovers of darkness. We are lost. We are aliens. We are strangers. We are foreigners. We are actually children of wrath without the Lord. And we are under the power of darkness without the Lord being in our lives. So therefore, in some ways, the unregenerated man is, in fact, dead. Spiritually dead. Again, trespasses, the idea behind the word there is that we've crossed the line. You know, kind of like when you're a little kid and you play that game. Come on, come on, step over the line, right? We've crossed that line. Trespasses. Challenging God's boundaries, right? Challenging God's authority in our life. Trespasses and then sins. The idea behind sins there is that, you know, we've missed the mark. Well, what, what mark? What, what did we miss? I didn't miss anything. I didn't see it on Facebook. I didn't miss it. You know? The perfect standard of God's law. That's what we've missed There's no way we can fulfill that. There's no way we can live up to that. There's no way we can fulfill any of those things. We've missed the mark on God's standard of holiness. So where does that put us? You know, that puts us as, you know, being a bunch of rebels and failures, pretty much. You know, that's what it comes down to. So before God, we are, in fact, both rebels and failures. Look at verse 2 talks about this uh, life of death. He says, notice it says, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, 
The Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Highlight this, underline it if you're taking notes today. It says, in which you once, highlight that, you once walked. So, so what does that mean? We shouldn't be walking in that anymore, right? As a, as a believer. We don't have to walk in that anymore. We don't need to walk in that anymore. We once walked. Yes, I was there before. Yes, the old man is there. But Jesus Christ, crucified on the cross for me, I no longer have to walk in that. I no longer have to be in that. Because it says, you once walked. And I think we need to be reminded of that this morning, that yes, we once walked there. And the temptation is, and the, the, the challenge is for us as believers is to look back at the old life, the old man, because Satan likes to just throw those things. And, you know, don't you remember how fun that was? Or don't you remember how good that was? I mean, you're, you're having to do all these do's and don'ts now, and there's no freedom in that. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan, when he whispers those things. Because, you know what? I don't walk in those things anymore. I once walked in those, and I don't have to walk in those anymore. We have a new nature. That sin nature was crucified, pinned to the tree, when he died for you and when he died for me. When he says there once walked, it, you know, just make a little note. It means that our lives should be different. Right? Our lives should be different from what? The rest of the world. What everybody else is doing. Our lives should be different. Again, if we're feeling spiritually dead, we need to ask ourselves, what happened? What's going on? Where are we at there? Because we don't have to live in that anymore. The, the life of trespasses and sins are gone. The old man's gone. I'm not saying we are sinless. Don't get me wrong. But that life of being under the weight of sin was taken away from us. And we are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You are a new creation in Christ this morning. You are a new person in Christ this morning. And we're also told in Scripture that we are new every day. Did you blow it yesterday? Well, I did. Did you blow it this morning? Yep, did that too. Yeah, no. It's new every day. Our life is new every day in Christ. Because it says there before in verse 2, the Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. See, in sin, what happens is we respond to Satan's guidance, right? We respond to the temptations as unbelievers. The same word that's used in Ephesians 2, 2 there for that guidance, the, the, those who works in the sons of disobedience, you know what? That's the same word of the power of God that works in the life of a believer. It's the same verb that is used there. Very powerful. You have to be, don't, don't think for a minute that Satan is not powerful, but we know one that's more powerful. Okay? Don't, don't think for a minute that he's not out there looking to destroy, kill, and take everything away from you. He absolutely is. He's also called there in verse 2, the prince of the power of the air. You know, speaking of his authority and his realm, referring to Satan's environment that he kind of operates in. You know, the, the heavenly realms. You guys remember that from Ephesians in 6, 
12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's where the battle takes place for believers. That's where Satan likes to operate. Notice also in verse 3 in Ephesians 2, it says, among whom also we all, again, once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. Again, at one point, for the believer, we used to be part of that sons of disobedience. We used to be in that group. How do we know that? Well, it was proven by our conduct, right? How did we act? Man, if you look at my life before I got saved, man, absolutely a son of disobedience. Doing my own thing. Doing whatever I wanted to do. Following my own flesh. Having no care, no concern, for the most part, for anybody else. It was all about me. It was all about what I wanted to do, and when I wanted to do it, and how I could do it, any way that made me feel better. The focus was all inward, on me. Fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Listening to the flesh. I like what uh, the famous evangelist H.C.G. Moore says about this. He says, the, the converts are to be reminded what they have been delivered from as well as they have been lifted into. They must be led to look down again into the pit, into the grave from which the grace of God called them out of and set them free. That's what God's grace did. He called you out of that pit. He called you out of that grave into a life of freedom in Christ. We need to be reminded of that this morning. He even says there in Ephesians 3, he says, we were by nature children of wrath. You know? Maybe you guys have seen that, right? You know, you're in, in Target, you're shopping, you know, some kid throwing a fit, you know, right? You walk by, you're like, mm, the spawn of Satan, you know? Uh, you know, okay. <laughs> man, what's wrong with that kid? Man, children of wrath, man. We were all there at one point before we became believers in Christ. Due to our surrender to the old man, the flesh, the, you know, we were by nature children of wrath. You know, you and I cannot change our heritage, like where we came from. You can't change who your parents are. Sorry, no matter how bad your kids want to try that, you can't change who your parents are. Sorry, doesn't work. But you know what? We can't change our heritage, right? We can't change. I can't go back and fix who the old man was before Christ. But you know what? I can absolutely change my future. I can absolutely change my children's future based on who Christ is in me because of what I can sow into them. So think about that. You know, where are we at? We, we are no longer those children of wrath, but we are walking now as children in the light. So how does this whole personal reconciliation thing work? How do I do it? What do I have to do, you know? Let's look at verse 4. It says, But God... I love those two words in the Bible. <laughs> but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. We first have to recognize that it starts with him. It starts with him. His motive is reconciliation. Mine is not. My motive was not reconciliation when I was an unbeliever. 
had no, I did not care about any of that. But God, as it says there in verse 4, also notice it says, because of his great love. You know, so Paul kind of explains the reason behind reconciliation here. God reconciling man to himself. Drawing man to himself. You know, it's important you know, that these reasons are found totally in God alone. They're not any part of that right there. We haven't talked about me, right? That verse has nothing to do with me. It says, but God, speaking of him, who is rich in mercy, speaking of him, because of his great love, speaking of him, which he loves us, speaking of him. You see that? It all starts with him. It all starts because of who his character is, because of who he is, and because of his rich mercy, and because of his great love, that he chooses to focus all that love and attention on you and me. He will never stop pursuing you. He will never stop chasing you down. You cannot run far enough away, you cannot move far enough away to where he cannot reach into your life. Notice the end of verse 4, it says, with which he loved us. You know, we might be able for a minute to kind of imagine a God of rich mercy and great love, you know, who, who really didn't focus that mercy and love upon us, right? And that's kind of scary for a minute if you think about that. What if he chose to hold back? Hold back some of that mercy for you. What if he chose to hold back his love for you? And that's difficult to think about that. Behind the good news of God's salvation, is, I mean, his plan was to offer his son for you and me. That is one of the greatest gifts of love. So as we talk about gift giving here, you know, in a week or so, and ripping open presents and stuff like that, and think about God's gift to you and to me and to this entire world through his son Jesus Christ, that he extended that to us. He extended his mercy. He extended his love to you and to me. Some kind of warp the idea of God's great mercy into something that kind of, you know, justifies our pride as a Christian, you know. You know, some imagine that God's love is because, well, frankly, it's just because I'm so lovable. You know, I mean, really. God, why, why wouldn't God like me? I mean, really. What a joke. I'm not lovable at all in any sense of the, in any sense of the meaning. But he still loves me anyway. He still cares so deeply about me anyway. And he still pursues me every day anyway, regardless of who I am. He extends that love to those that are unlovable. He extends that love even to those children of wrath, those that are still a member of that children of wrath group, the sons of disobedience. You know, he still extends his love to them as well to the blasphemer, to the murderer, to the ISIS terrorist, to the harlot, that in our minds, they're not worthy of love. What does he say? I love them. And I sent my son for them. 
and he died for them. The same love that he has for them is the same love that he has for you and me. The truth is, in reality, that none of us are worthy of God's love, yet he loves us anyway. Thankfully, you know, every reason of God's mercy, every, every reason of, you know, God's love is found in him and him alone. It's not up to anything that we can do. I mean, we would extort it. <laughs> in reality, if you think about that for a minute, if it were up to us or if it were found in us in any way, shape, or form, we would probably exploit it somehow. And thankfully, the whole point of all that is that we need to stop trying to make ourselves lovable to God. You cannot do anything else to, well, oh man, I just, I love, I love Tim so much more today. I mean, he just did all these little things. and I, I just love him so much. We cannot do anything to make him love us more. My kids, man, woo. You bring out the candy jar, you bring out the cookies, I'm the greatest dad in the world, okay? It's on. Okay? It's not like that with God in our relationship with Him. We need to simply receive it. It's a gift that He gave to us. It's, and we just simply need to receive it. And then also remember that we're unworthy of it. We were never, we were never deserving of it anyway. We never deserved it. So continuing on with this idea of reconciliation, it starts with God. We're going to look at a few things, past, present, and future, of God's work in individuals. Let's look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In verse 7, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Did you notice that in verse 5? Talking about our past. Even when we were dead. Even when we were spiritually dead. Sons of disobedience. Daughters of disobedience. Children of wrath. No concern for God whatsoever. He still wanted to make us alive. He still loved us. He still chose to pursue us. This is when God started loving us, even when we were in that state. And thanks to Adam and Eve and the fall in the garden, that started when you were born physically, just so you, in case you forgot that. Okay? You don't think, you know, that we are born into selfishness? You know, what's the first thing a little baby does when he comes out of the womb? He cries. Okay? He just had a traumatic experience happen to him. He comes, he's hungry. Okay? Very traumatic for a child coming into the world. You probably don't remember it. I do. But, you know, it's traumatic. You know? No, you don't know. And we see the selfishness immediately. Hold me. Feed me. Take care of me. Clean me. Hold me. Put me to sleep. We were born into that. This is when God started loving us. He didn't wait until you were lovable. He didn't wait until, oh, okay, now I've done enough good work and if John's done enough good stuff now, now I can love him. Now he's at a place where, okay, he finally arrived. No, he never, he never arrived. He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, proving that, you know, there's nothing lovable in me. 
He loves me anyway. John 5, 24, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me knows has passed from death into life. So furthermore, John furthermore says we were dead. But as the believer, when we make that choice to put our faith and trust into Jesus Christ and being our Lord and Savior, we move into life. We, were, uh, we are alive now. Starting point of your salvation, if you will. You know, it, It's important for us to understand you first have to be dead. In order to be brought back to life, you have to be dead. It's not like a, uh, you, you don't you know, warm up the paddles and shock somebody who's alive. Okay, it doesn't, you can, but that's not, that's kind of mean. I think they call them tasers nowadays, you know. But, you know, you don't, you just don't do that. <laughs> to bring somebody back to life, they have to first be dead. Dead to what? Dead to what? Dead to every single attempt to justify yourself before God on your own strength. Well, I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not, I don't, I've never really killed anybody. I haven't really stolen anything. I'm not, you know, stolen a car or nothing, nothing big, you know. I'm okay, right, God? We're good, right? You know how I am. You know what I've done for you. And that self-justification has to be brought to that point of being dead completely. Every attempt, nothing left, dead in order to be brought to life in Christ Jesus. Notice in verse 5 again, it says, made us alive together with Christ. This is what God did to those who were dead in sin, dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses. We shared in his death on the cross so that we could also share in his resurrected life. The same. The old man, again, crucified to the cross, pinned to the tree. We are new creations in Christ. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You are a new creation in Christ. Furthermore, in Ephesians 2 and verse 5, at the end, notice it says, by grace you have been saved. Paul is compelled to add here that it is completely a work of God's grace that you are saved. In no way involving man's merit whatsoever. Our salvation in Christ, our rescue from the pit of hell, spiritual death to spiritual life, all of it, God's work, completed on the cross, done, finished. What did he say before he gave himself up? It is finished. It is done. Notice in verse 6, and he raised us up. So now we're going to look at our present condition. We looked at our past, where we came from. The present condition, notice verse 6, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is our present position in Christ today. Present position for you and me. We have a new place of living, right? This 
earth, not our home, right? The worship team does a great song, you know, the home, you know, this is this, he- this heaven, this is not our home here. We're just passing through. We're just, we're just, you know, on temporary visas, okay? We're not here permanently. This is not where we reside. Our citizenship is in heaven, we're told, in Philippians 3.20. As believers, you know, we don't hold on to dual citizenship. We don't need to hold on to that. I don't want to hold on to citizenship of this place anymore. Now, we don't physically sit in heaven right now. It doesn't say we sit there with Christ Jesus yet, right? That's coming sooner than we think, right? But it says we sit in the heavenly places, circle that, it says in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus in us. Since our life and identity is in Christ, we sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus today. We sit in that with him. And God's never going to stop dealing with us on the basis of grace because we blow it every day. We blow it over and over again. And he's never going to stop dealing with us on that basis of his grace and forgiveness toward us. Present place, where we are at right now. I love what Spurgeon says about God's grace. He says, so it is with the grace of God. He has as much grace as you want. And he has a great deal more than that. The Lord has much more grace as the whole universe will ever require. But he has vastly more. He overflows. All the demands that can ever be made on the grace of God will never impoverish him or even diminish his stone of mercy. There will remain an incalculable, precise mine of mercy and grace when he first chose us to be sons of men. His storeroom of grace will never run dry. And one of the greatest things I think about God's grace is see how is just to see how he is so patient with us. He is so patient with mankind as he, you know, begs us to receive it, pleads with us, pursues us, chases after us. You know, when we offer a gift to somebody, you know, you know, be prepared. This could happen Christmas morning, okay? You choose to give a gift to somebody you thought was the best gift in the world. Put a lot of thought into it, bought it online, you know, ship at your front door. Yeah, a lot of thought, okay? And uh, you got it, and you present it to them, and they're like, oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you for, for that gift. Sometimes that's how people treat the gift of God, right? Because they don't really fully understand what he's done for us. They don't really fully understand why we even need the gift. Why, why do I even need that gift? Why do we even need a gift from God? What did I do? God does not ever stop pursuing us and giving out his free gift of grace. So we're going to sum all this. He sums all this up in verses 8 through 10. Look at in uh, Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul cannot speak of this glorious work God does without reminding us that it is, in fact, a gift of grace given to those that are undeserving. 
given to those that don't deserve it, can't earn it no matter what. We are not even saved partially by our faith or anything like that. You know, faith itself is not a work, but grace through faith. Grace through faith. We are saved by grace through faith. You know, we can think of kind of like water. You know, you're out watering your lawn, water flowing through a hose, and you know, and the hose, all it does is transfer the water from one place to another, right? You know? The hose by itself, without the faucet turned on, does nothing to quench your thirst when you're out working in the garden or doesn't do, doesn't do anything to nourish the plants out there, right? Doesn't do anything like that. In our society, it's kind of difficult for us to imagine, you know, you know, water just flowing out of a hose. You know, we're, we're all comfortable with that. You know, but when I was growing up, my, you know, we washed my hands, you know, washed the car, do dishes, whatever, take a shower. My dad would always remind me, you know what? You wouldn't let that water run like that if you had to fetch it from the well. You see, the living water that comes from Christ is just like that faucet on your hose. You know what? You turn it on, it flows. You don't have to go fetch it. You don't have to have fear of it running dry. You don't have to purify it. You don't have to treat it any kind of way. You can just, man, partake of it. But the point there is that you have to at least turn the faucet on. You have to allow it to flow into your life. You have to allow God's grace to run into your life. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. We can't believe in Jesus unless God does a prior work in us to get us to that point. You know, realizing that we are dead. You know, we were blinded by our own dead condition. You know, by the God of this age. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, Whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God should shine on them. He has to do a work in us. Notice that it's He doing a work in us. Verse 9 says, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We touched on this a little bit earlier. It's not anything that we can do. Salvation was the accomplishment of man. I mean, we would, again, we would exploit it. We would monopolize it somehow. You know, we'd be making money, try to make money off of it. Thankfully, it's His work in us. In verse 10 it says, for we are his workmanship. God saved us. He pulled us out of the pit. Not merely just to do that. He wanted to turn us and transform us into something beautiful. Something that he can use. Something that he gets to sow into. The word workmanship there in the Greek is poema, which is where we get our word poem from. You are a poem in his eyes. Beautiful poem. The Jerusalem Bible translates the word there, uh, workmanship, as work of art. You're a work of art in his eyes. So, what does that mean? You know, works of art, you know, they're, usually, they're not completed yet, okay? Mine's not done yet. He's working on it. God's transforming love, you know, meeting us right where we're at allowing him to work on us, allowing him to chip away at us, you know, knock some stuff off that shouldn't be there. Those are the things, him working in us. 
The love of God that saves my soul will also change my life. God's love, if we, will, if we allow Him, He will change our lives. Notice in 10, it also says that we are created in Christ Jesus to come to church and sit around and do nothing. Oh, whoa. Sorry, wrong translation. Sorry, sorry. It says, for good works. Pastor Tim shared this morning about there's a lot of opportunities for us to partake in work, cleaning toilets, doing greeting, ushering, lots of different places we can fit in as the body of Christ. The beautiful thing is that, you know, it's an active work that God's doing in us. It's not a once and done thing. Whoo, salvation, done. Got some fire insurance. It's getting a little hot there, you know. Whew. It's not a once and done kind of thing. You are a work in progress. I am a work in progress. He never stops working in our lives. So this morning, are you still allowing God to change your life? Are you still allowing Him to do a work in you? Are you still allowing Him to chip away at you? So that's God's work of reconciliation toward the individual. Paul also shares about the work of reconciliation between groups of people. You know, we can also have reconciliation between one-on-one, peer-to-peer. Look at verse 11. Speaking of the Gentiles and the Jews. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So at one point, Gentiles, Jews, Gentiles on the outside looking in, they were without Christ, looking in, not being able to partake of the same things that the Jews were able to partake of and being able to partake of God because they were, sadly, as it says there in verse 12, without Christ. I mean, those are probably, I think, some of the most terrible words that you read right there in Scripture today is that what we look at is being without Christ. Somebody who is without Christ. I mean, they have no hope of anything. They have no hope. They have no rest. They can have no peace in their life. There's no light in their life. There's no spiritual blessings in their life. There's no hope that they have. There's no king in their life. They're doing their own thing. I like what Spurgeon says. He says, without Christ, without Christ, if this be the description of some of you, we need not talk to you about the fires of hell. Let this be enough to startle you, that you are in such a desperate state as to be without Christ. What terrible evils lie clustering, thinking about these two tragic words. Without Christ. So hopefully that's not where you're at today. Without Christ. And maybe you've never even thought of that. You know, am I with Christ? Am I not with Christ? How how do I know? If you're even questioning whether or not you are, chances are you probably are not. Pastor told me one time you have to know that you know that you know that you know that you know that you're saved. You have to know that. If you're even questioning that this morning, you're probably not. 
If you haven't made the full commitment to follow Christ, you haven't done that. Don't leave here today without talking with somebody. It is that vital. Such a desperate state that you're in, not having Christ in your life. The Gentiles were brought near to God. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Because we're in Christ Jesus. Now, because we're in Christ Jesus. Gentiles who are now in Christ Jesus, we are no longer afar off. We are no longer, there's not that void of separation between us and God. We are brought near to Him. You and I are now near to Him. And the only thing that accomplished that was the blood of Christ. That is the only thing that drew you to Him and allows us to come to, to, come to Him. Hebrews, in 9, Hebrews 9, verse 22. Notice it says at the end of the verse there, it says, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. God had to send His Son Jesus Christ, to spill his blood on the cross for you and me for this whole reconciliation process to even take place. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Gentiles who are not in Christ Jesus are as just as far off today as the same Gentiles were in Paul's time when he wrote this. Just as far off. Just as separated from God because you don't have Christ Jesus. You are not in Christ Jesus. Paul connects this idea with the great love of Jesus and his sacrificial death here. You know, many people think that, well, you know, preaching and teaching Christ crucified, oh, it's just a bloody thing, it's a gory thing, and not at all. When When we speak of that, we speak of God's grace and his love that he poured out on his son for you and me. That's what the cross means. That's what it means when he sent his son is that he was pouring out his grace on us. Pouring out his love in you and me because he put every sin of the world on his son on the cross so that we could be reconciled to him. And we're brought near by the blood of Christ. You know, and many people have different ways of thinking you can get close to God, you know by keeping the law, by doing this, doing that, not doing this, by doing that. You know, well, what if I just belong to a certain group? I just have to belong. You just have to belong to this church or that church or this this church of whatever, and and then you're good. Some even think, well, maybe you just attend Calvary Chapel, and then you're good. You're in. No. The only way to be brought near to God is by the blood of Christ and accepting Jesus Christ as, your, as, as, as Lord and Savior in your life. Not even coming to church week in and week out. It, won't, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. That's playing church. That's religion. Which in Jesus' time, all through Scripture, we see in the New Testament that He hated that. He, he, he hammered religion hard. He doesn't reside in a building. He doesn't reside in a building, in a physical structure. He resides in the church, the body of Christ. Going to church won't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's is going to make you a hamburger. I love that. I don't know who said that, but I love that. Just because you walk in the door after church, you go down the hill, you walk in the door, you don't just become a Big Mac. And a lot of people have the same thought about church. 
I go to church every Sunday, and all of a sudden I'm good. I'm in. I'm, I'm with the crowd. I'm, in, I'm with the in crowd. It's not going to happen. You have to make that commitment and surrender. You have to become dead before you can be made alive. Should you come to well, well, we shouldn't come to church each week then. No, that's not what I'm saying. Don't try that one. Okay? Come here, week in, week out. Hear the word of God, being taught. That's, that's what we have to give is the word of God because it pours into our lives. It speaks into our lives to have fellowship with one another. We don't come to the building to be saved. I've heard many stories, and I'm sure you guys have as well, where people were in their bedroom or in a hotel room, and maybe they read a track or you know, they saw something on TV, and they just fell down and gave their life to Christ. You don't have to give your life to Christ at church either, okay? It happens everywhere. You know, I mean, what do people do in the jungle? You know? What do people do in the middle of the desert? People, you can give your life to Christ at any moment, wherever you're at. Just, just do it. Don't, don't make excuses about not doing it. Recognizing what Jesus did on the cross, suffering as a guilty sinner in the place of sinners like you and me is what brings us near to God, is what draws us into Him. So Jew and Gentile are also brought together. Notice verse 14. We'll start to wrap it up here. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Jesus is our peace. He hasn't simply made peace between God and man, between God and my life. He is our peace. He is peace. Jesus' work on the cross was common ground for every group, Jew, Gentile, whatever, fill in the blank, for all. There's no longer that dividing wall. It says there, and the, the wall of separation, the middle wall of separation was broken down. You see, in the temple, there was a wall of separation there from, uh, from certain groups and people that could come into certain areas of the temple. You know, women had to stop at one point. Gentiles had to stop at a point. Men could go here to this point. There were certain walls of separation between Jew and Gentile. Paul was at the time of this writing, you know, he was in, in house arrest in Rome, you know, awaiting trial because he's being falsely accused, he was thinking of this dividing wall, this literal wall of separation. Paul made it clear that Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, that wall is brought down. It's torn down. The wall of separation is gone under the common lordship that we have in Christ Jesus. I don't care what political view you have. If you have racial views, economic views, social views, language views, barriers, geographical views, whatever. It doesn't matter. All of those are torn down at the cross of Christ and should not be a part of the church. Should not be a part of the church. There is common lordship in our lives 
in Christ Jesus. If you think that a political view or Republican, Democrat, whatever, if that is more than a relationship between a brother and sister that you have in Christ, you don't fully understand what it means to be under the Lordship of Christ. Those differences are all going to burn. They're all going to fall by the wayside. Those differences should not hinder us. Should not hinder our relationship with others. And we should not put those differences above or put or pin that on somebody. You guys have probably you guys probably have friends here in the church, in the body of Christ, that are probably far closer than even some blood relatives, even blood family. We were talking about that with some uh, friends of ours that just moved into our neighborhood about two or three months ago. I mean, solid, solid believers in Christ, man. It's so awesome when you get to sit down with believers. Man, it feels like we've known them forever. We have, we have a common bond in Christ that is, is, is unexplainable. Our kids enjoy playing with their kids like they've known them forever, like they're part of our family because we are part of the same family. Because of the reconciliation that God did in their life and because of the reconciliation that he did in my life, in my family, we, we share a common ground. We don't, they don't go here. They don't even go to our church. It doesn't matter. They're part of the church. They're part of the body of Christ. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have that bond together. So through the cross, he did all these things for us, bringing that reconciliation together. Look at verse 17. How we see the Jews and Gentiles being brought together. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. They responded to the same gospel message. The same peace that was preached to those afar off in Paul's time is the same thing that we preach today. Is the same thing I'm talking about today. The gospel never changes. It doesn't have to change for Jew. It doesn't have to change for Gentile or this group or for that group or for these people or those people. The gospel is the same. They responded. Why? Because they heard. We have to tell. As believers, we have to tell. We have to share the good news. They were changed and they were brought near. They were brought together. They were reconciled because they heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice also in verse 18, they now enjoy the same access to God, both Jew, both Gentile. For through Him, through Christ, we both have the access by one Spirit to the Father. Not only are they saved by the same gospel, but they are also granted the same access to God through Jesus Christ. One group does not have greater access over the other. When conflict arises between Christian groups, Christian groups, okay, one church, this church, this organization, that organization, differing backgrounds, right? You can be sure that they quickly forget that they were both saved by the same gospel. That we both have the same exact access to God 
because we have the same Savior. We need to be careful of that as Christians. Be very careful of that, of what we you know, stand on and what battling this group or that group or whatever. I mean, just be very careful with that. Now we're going to look, as we wrap up here, this picture of God's work of reconciliation. Verse 19, we'll wrap it up here. Now, therefore, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Paul now refers to these Christians of Gentile background here. They should not regard themselves anymore as second-class citizens, as, you know, one-offs. They're of a less of a standard from where they are. They are now full citizens, full members, equal members in the household of God. That's why here at Calvary we don't really do memberships. You know, we're not going to give you a membership card and you're now in. You know, you're in the group. You're in the group now. We get, we're members of the body of Christ. We're, I don't care what church you go to. You're a member of the body of Christ. When he comes back, how many churches is he coming back for? One. He's coming back for one church. Not this church and not that church, not the church down the street and this church over here. He's coming back for the church, the body of Christ. And we are now part of that foundation because of what Jesus himself, he is the chief cornerstone. Notice it says we're being built up on, in verse 20, being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Being built on the foundation that they laid. Guess what? We're still getting to continue to lay on the, on the foundation. It's not too exciting. You guys are just a bunch of stones. Okay? Just a pile of rocks. Sorry to be the one to break that to you this morning. But this cornerstone, this tip of the angle, you know, is, is, is what the whole structure is being built. You know, today, when we build buildings and stuff like that, we got GPS and all this kind of stuff. We got a picture of a cornerstone up here, I think. There's a, maybe, we'll look at it. Picture of what a cornerstone looks like. The other one before that? That one? Oh, there you go. So, that's what a cornerstone would look like. It's a much larger brick that they would put on the corner of the building, near the bottom, near the base of the foundation. That's what they would pull every single dimension off the rest of that building. That's what they would build the entire building off of. That's the cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church. A side note, the other slide there, just so you guys know, kind of, this is a side, side note, tidbit of information. There's a group called the, the Temple, Temple Mount uh, Temple Stone Mount uh, group. I forgot the exact terminology that they're using, but they've had these stones. On that truck right there, those are the cornerstones that they have already hand-hewn for the third temple that's going to be built in Jerusalem. You excited about that? That third temple doesn't get, bat, doesn't get built until we get into you know, some stuff in Revelation. See how close we are? There's guys driving trucks around Jerusalem right now waiting for him to just say, start building. Okay? You guys remember what happened just a couple weeks ago with our president? What did he say? Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. That's where it belongs. Now, we didn't need Trump to tell us that, okay? This right here told me that. <laughs> okay? 
I didn't need Trump to tell me that stuff. Don't, don't give me Okay? But there's a group ready to drop them stones off that truck and build the third temple. You see how close we are to end times? Don't play around with your salvation in Jesus Christ. Don't play around. If you are doubting today whether you're saved or not, stop doubting. Make the choice. Make the choice today. Don't wait. Because everything is laid. Foundations, everything's ready to go. We're just waiting for the trump in the sky, man. And that can come at any moment. Before we even finish talking right now, that can come right now in the blink of an eye. As far as, as quick as the lightning flashes from the east to the west, the Bible says. That's how fast it's going to happen. Don't wait. Notice in verse 21, we'll wrap it up here, in, in whom the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple of the Lord. We're all being built into that body of Christ in a beautiful way. You know, God chipping away at us. You know, working in our lives, you know. He takes us, he pounds us, he beats on us, he chips away some of the rough edges to make us fit perfectly in that place in the body of Christ that he intended you to be. Maybe you're new here today. Maybe you're visiting, you know. There's a lot of people today searching for that perfect church to fit into. Let me tell you, this probably isn't it. There is no perfect church, okay? There is no perfect church other than the body of Christ. So as we search for places, as we go around looking for that perfect fit, you know, just know that when you find that perfect place, you'll get in there, your imperfections are going to mess it up, okay? So there is no perfect church. Here, we're not going to do everything right. We're going to blow it. We just look for God's grace and forgiveness and move on, okay? But allow the Lord to work in your life. If you're still searching Search for the Lord in your life, and he'll, he'll direct you. I absolutely believe he will direct you to the right place to be. He drew a lot of you here. He drew me here. He, drew, he draws us and has a way of taking us where he wants us to be. He has a way of working in our lives. But you know what we have to do? We have to sit still and let him chip on us, okay? And let him peck away at us with the rock and hammer and with the chisel. And let him do it. And that work is sometimes painful, Maybe you do fit perfectly here in this place with us. That's, that's great. But allow him, don't ever stop allowing him to work on your life. And, and don't ever harden your heart to the point where he can't work in your life. You don't want to do that. Reconciliation. It starts with individual reconciliation between you and the Lord. And again, if you're here today and you've never taken that first step to, you, know, you don't know, I'd venture to say that you haven't. Don't wait another minute. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed another minute. Don't wait. It's that important. Because without it, you stand in that place of those two harsh words, without Christ. Those are so hard to swallow. You know, you have to know that you know that you know that you're saved. If you are reconciled to God this morning, praise God, man. Thank Him for it daily. Thank you, and don't ever forget where you once were. Don't ever forget where you came from. If the old man's trying to raise up and beat him down, get behind me, Satan. Don't let that old man come back in and try to, uh, you know, ruin that work of art that God is building your life. Don't allow him to do that. And 
painfully endure little trials and chipping away and pecking away at your life, allow those things to take place. Because you know what? When he does that, man, the end result is so much prettier than what it was before. Don't ever allow God to stop working in your life. Amen? Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word today. We thank you, Lord, that we were able to read your word, to study your word, to have your word just sink into our lives, Lord, as we enter this season of giving. And Lord, we just thank you and that we were reminded this morning of the most precious gift that you gave us, Jesus Christ, your son on the cross. Thank you, Father God, for that. Thank you, Lord, for your precious spilt blood that draws us to you draws us into you and allows us to have access, Lord, that the, the middle wall of separation is taken down, Lord. There is no more gap between us and you. And Father, I pray for anyone here today that does not know you, Lord, that has not made that commitment to follow you as Lord and Savior. If they have not completely surrendered their life to you, Lord, you know who they are right now, Lord. And I just pray that they would come up here at the end, Lord, just seeking prayer, Lord, seeking that in their life not waiting another moment, not hesitating. Thank you, Lord, that you continually pursue them and you continually pursue us, Lord. Thank you for loving us so much, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the very gift of your Son. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.